0: Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep, or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Selden paused in surprise. In the afternoon rush of the Grand Central Station, his eyes had been refreshed by the sight of Miss Lily Bart. It was a Monday in early September, and he was returning to his work from a hurry to dip into the country. But what was Miss Bart doing in town at that season? If she had appeared to be catching a train, he might have inferred that he had come on her in the act of transition between one and another of the country houses which disputed her presence after the close of the Newport season. But her desultory air perplexed him. She stood apart from the crowd, letting it drift by her to the platform, or the street, and wearing an air of a resolution which might, as he summarised, be the mask of a very definite purpose. It struck him at once that she was waiting for someone, but he hardly knew why the idea arrested him. There was nothing new about Lily Bart, yet he could never see her without a faint movement of interest. It was a characteristic of her that she always roused speculation. And that her simplest acts seemed the result of far-reaching intentions. An impulse of curiosity made him turn out of his direct line to the door and stroll past her. He knew that if she did not wish to be seen, she would contrive to elude him, and it amused him to think of her putting her skill to the test. Mr. Selden, what good luck? She came forward, smiling, eager almost, in her resolve to intercept him. One or two persons in brushing past them lingered to look, for Miss Bart was a figure to arrest even the suburban traveller rushing for his last train. Selden had never seen her more radiant. Her vivid head, relieved against the dull tint of the crowd, made her more conspicuous than in a ballroom. And under her dark hat and veil, she regained the girlish smoothness, the purity of tint, that she was beginning to lose after eleven years of late hours and indefatigable dancing. Was it really eleven years? Selden found himself wondering, and had she indeed reached the nine and twentieth birthday with which her rivals credited her? What luck, she repeated, how nice of you to come to my rescue. He responded joyfully that to do so was his mission in life, and asked what form the rescue was to take. Oh, almost any, even to sitting on a bench and talking to me. Once sits out a cotillion, why not sit out a train? It isn't a bit hotter in here than Miss Van Osburgh's conservatory, as some of the women are not a bit uglier. She broke off, laughing, to explain that she had come uptown from Tuxedo, and on her way to the Gusttrenners at Belmont, she had missed the 3.15 train to Rhinebeck, and there isn't another until half past five. She consulted the little jeweled watch among her laces. Just two hours to wait and I don't know what to do with myself. My maid came up this morning to do some shopping for me and was to go on to Belmont at one o'clock. And my aunt's house is closed and I don't know a soul in town. She glanced plaintively about the station. It is hotter than Mrs. Van Osburgh's after all. If you can spare the time, do you take me somewhere for a breath of air? He declared himself entirely at her disposal. The adventure struck him as diverting. As a spectator, he had always enjoyed Lily Bart, and his course lay so far out of her orbit that it amused him to be drawn for a moment into the sudden intimacy which her proposal implied. Shall we go over to Sherry's for a cup of tea? She smiled assentingly, and then made a slight grimace. So many people come uptown on a Monday. One is sure to meet a lot of bores. I'm as old as the hills, of course, and it ought not to make any differences. But if I'm old, you're not, she objected gaily. I'm dying for tea, but isn't there a quieter place? He answered her smile, which rested on him vividly. Her discretions interested him almost as much as her imprudences. He was so sure that both were part of the same carefully elaborated plan. In judging Miss Bart, he had always made use of the argument from design. The resources of New York are rather meagre, he said, but I'll find a handsome first, and then we'll invent something. He led her through the throng of returning holiday makers, past sallow-faced girls in preposterous hats, and flat-chested women struggling with paper bundles. Was it possible that she belonged to the same race? The dinginess, the crudity of this average selection of womanhood made him feel how highly specialised she was. A rapid shower had cooled the air and clouds still hung refreshingly over the moist street. How delicious, let us walk a little, she said as they emerged from the station. They turned into Madison Avenue and began to stroll northward. As she moved beside him, with her long light step, Selden was conscious of taking in a luxurious pleasure in her nearness. In the modelling of her little ear, the crisp upward wave of her hair, was it ever so slightly brightened by art, and the thick planting of her straight black lashes. Everything about her was at once vigorous and exquisite, at once strong and fine. He had a confused sense that she must have cost a great deal to make, that a great many dull and ugly people must, in some mysterious way, have been sacrificed to produce her. He was aware that the qualities distinguishing her were chiefly external, as though a fine glaze of beauty and fastidiousness had been applied to vulgar clay, yet the analogy left him unsatisfied, for a coarse texture will not take a high finish. And was it not possible that the material was fine, but that the circumstance had fashioned it into a futile shape? As he reached this point in his speculations, the sun came out and her lifted parasol cut off his enjoyment. A moment or two later, she paused with a sigh. Oh dear, I'm so hot and thirsty. What a hideous place New York is, she looked despairingly up and down, the dreary thoroughfare. Other cities put on their best clothes in the summer, but New York seems to sit in its shirt sleeves. Her eyes wandered down one of the side streets. Someone has had the humanity to plant a few trees over there, let us go into the shade. I'm glad my streets meet your approval, said Selden. Your streets? Do you live here? She glanced with interest at the new brick and limestone fronts, Fantastically varied in obedience to the American craving for novelty, but fresh and inviting with their awnings and flower boxes. Oh yes, to be sure, the Benedict. What a nice building. I don't think I've ever seen it before. She looked across the flat house with its marble porch and pseudo Georgian facade. Which are your windows? Those with the awnings down? And that nice little balcony is yours? How cool it looks up there! He paused a moment. Come up and see, he suggested. I can give you a cup of tea in no time, and you won't meet any bores. Her color deepened. She still had the art of blushing at the right time, but she took the suggestion as lightly as it was made why not it's too tempting i'll take the risk she declared oh i'm not dangerous he said in the same key in truth he had never liked her as well at that moment he knew she'd accept it without afterthought he could never be a factor in her calculations and there was a surprise a refreshment almost in the spontaneity of her consent on the threshold he paused a moment feeling for his latch key there's no one here but I have a servant who is supposed to come in the mornings, and it's just possible he may have put out the tea things and provided some cake. He ushered her into a slip of hall hung with old prints. She noticed the letters and notes heaped on the table, among his gloves and sticks, and then she found herself in a small library, dark but cheerful, with its wall of books, a pleasantly faded turkey rug, a littered desk, And as he had foretold, a tea tray on a low table near the window. A breeze had sprung up, swaying inward the muslin curtains, and bringing in a fresh scent of mignonette and petunias from the flower box on the balcony. Lily sank with a sigh into one of the shabby leather chairs. How delicious to have a place like this all to oneself. What a miserable thing it is to be a woman. She leaned back in a luxury of discontent. Selden was rummaging in the cupboard for cake. Even women, he said, have been known to enjoy the privileges of a flat. Oh, governesses, or widows. But not girls, not poor, miserable, marriageable girls. I even know a girl who lives in a flat. She sat up in surprise. You do? I do, he assured her, emerging from the cupboard with a sought-for cake. Oh, I know, you mean Gertie Farish. She smiled a little unkindly, but I said marriageable, and besides, she has a horrid little place, and no maid, and such queer things to eat. Her cook does the washing, and the food tastes of soap. I should hate that, you know. You shouldn't dine with her on wash days, said Selden, cutting the cake. They both laughed, and he knelt by the table to light the lamp under the kettle, while she measured out the tea into a little pot of green glaze. As he watched her hand, polished as a bit of old ivory, with its slender pink nails and the sapphire bracelet slipping over her wrist, he was struck with the irony of suggesting to her such a life as his cousin Gertrude Farish had chosen. She was so evidently victim of the civilization which had produced her that the links of her bracelet seemed like manacles chaining her to her fate. She seemed to read his thought. It was horrid of me to say that of Gertie, she said, with a charming compunction. I forgot she was your cousin, but we're so different, you know. She likes being good, and I like being happy. And besides, she is free, and I am not. If I were her, I dare say, I could manage to be happy even in her flat. It must be pure bliss to arrange the furniture just as one likes, and give all the horrors to the Ashmen. If I could only do over my aunt's drawing room, I know I should be a better woman. Is it so very bad? He asked, sympathetically. She smiled at him across the teapot which she was holding up to be filled. That shows how often you come there. Why don't you come oftener? When I do come, it's not to look at Mrs. Penniston's furniture. Nonsense, she said. You don't come at all. And yet we get on so well when we meet. Perhaps that's the reason he answered promptly. I'm afraid I haven't any cream, you know. Shall you mind a slice of lemon instead? I shall like it better. She waited while he cut the lemon and dropped a thin disc into her cup. But that is not the reason, she insisted. The reason for what? For your never coming. She leaned forward with a shade of perplexity in her charming eyes. I wish I knew. I wish I could make you out. Of course, I know there are men who don't like me one can tell that at glance. And there are others who are afraid of me. They think I want to marry them. She smiled up at him, frankly. But I don't think you dislike me, and you can't possibly think I want to marry you. No, I, I absolve you of that, he agreed. Well then? He had carried his cup to the fireplace, and stood leaning against the chimney piece, and looking down on her with an air of amusement. The provocation in her eyes increased his amusement. He had not supposed she would waste her powers in such small game. But perhaps she was only keeping her hand in. Or perhaps a girl of her type had no conversation but of the personal kind. At any rate, she was amazingly pretty. And he had asked her to tea, and must live up to his obligations. Well then, he said with a plunge, perhaps that's the reason. What? The fact that you don't want to marry me, perhaps I don't regard it as such a strong inducement to go and see you. He felt a slight shiver down his spine as he ventured this, but her laugh reassured him. Dear Mr. Selden, that wasn't worthy of you. It's stupid of you to make love to me, and it isn't like you to be stupid. She leaned back, sipping her tea with an air so enchantingly judicial that if they had been in her aunt's drawing room, he might almost have tried to disprove her deduction. Don't you see, she said, that there are men enough to say pleasant things to me, and that what I want is a friend who won't be afraid to say disagreeable ones when I need them. Sometimes I have fancied you might be that friend. I don't know why, except that you are neither a prig nor a bounder, and that I shouldn't have to pretend with you or be on my guard against you. Her voice had dropped to a note of seriousness, and she sat gazing up at him with the troubled gravity of a child. You don't know how much I need a friend, she said. My aunt is full of copybook axioms, but they were all meant to apply to conduct in the early 50s. And the other women, my best friends, well, they use me or abuse me, but they don't care a straw what happens to me. I've been about too long, people are getting tired of me. They're beginning to say I ought to marry. There was a moment's pause, during which Selden meditated one or two replies calculated to add a momentary zest to the situation, but he rejected them in favour of the simple question, well, why don't you?